This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour. Welcome to our program today, and thank you for joining us. I'm Jeremiah Jacques. The nation of Somalia, on the Horn of Africa, is currently suffering the longest and most severe drought in its history. This is dramatically affecting its food production and leaving millions of Somalis in a state of food security crisis. Russia's war on Ukraine is exacerbating the crisis, since Somalia depends on both Ukraine and Russia for a huge percentage of its wheat imports. So those shipments are being disrupted, and then inflation is yet another factor that is further aggravating this crisis. So it's a perfect storm in some ways, and experts are warning that Somalia could soon be in full-blown famine. So we will hear about the details of this slow-motion tragedy in a report from trumpet writer Mihailo Zekic. Meanwhile, a little further to the south in Africa, the Chinese are becoming more and more deeply embedded in the resource-rich nation of Zimbabwe. And now, in addition to other resources, the Chinese have set up operations to take lithium, all the lithium they can, from Zimbabwe. Lithium has become an increasingly precious metal in a world with an insatiable appetite for phones, laptops, and batteries for electric cars. So it's no surprise that China is working to tighten its grip on this element. But the Chinese mining paints a dark picture for Zimbabwe's future, which we'll learn about in a report from Zimbabwean national and trumpet writer Rafaro Manyepa. Meanwhile, Russia's war on Ukraine continues into its second year, and one of the talking points that has remained prominent throughout is the role of religion. The Russian Orthodox Church and the Ukrainian Orthodox Church are intimately linked, and the head of the Russian Orthodox Church is among Vladimir Putin's strongest allies and supporters of the war. This man has great power, and he has also used his position to make himself an obscenely wealthy man, and a new report exposes the fact that for decades, he has actually been an agent of the Russian government. We'll hear about these revelations in a report from trumpet writer Andrew Miller. And then our last word today is inspired by this day in history, March 15th, the Ides of March. That's a phrase most of us are familiar with because of William Shakespeare. So it is a fitting time to take a quick look at the bard and all that he left for us to study and to be edified and enriched by. So that'll be at the tail end of today's episode, and we'll start here at the beginning with a look at the famine in Somalia in this report by Mihailo Zekic. Somalia is a country in the Horn of Africa that is facing significant challenges and has been facing them for years. In 2017, the poverty rate was projected at 69%. In 2020, the adult literacy rate was estimated at only 40%. The jihadist terror group Al-Shabaab, meanwhile, controls large sections of the country, and the government only stays afloat through the constant presence of foreign peacekeepers. With all these circumstances hitting the country at once, one may think that things can't get much worse. But then came the drought. 
Somalia is currently in what the United Nations called the longest and most severe drought in its history. The Horn of Africa usually has two wet seasons a year. One lasts from March to May and another from October to December. The past five wet seasons, going back all the way to 2020, have all failed. And climatologists are expecting the coming wet season this spring to also fail. This is causing severe agricultural problems and food shortages in Somalia. And while the crisis hasn't technically reached levels the UN classifies as a famine yet, that's a statistical definition that Somalia is approaching in some respects, but hasn't quite made it just yet. In February, the UN estimated over 8 million people, nearly half of Somalia's population, require immediate life-saving aid and protection. Through the ongoing drought, roughly 1.5 million people have already been displaced, some of them hemorrhaging across the border into countries like Kenya as refugees, and at least 3.5 million livestock have died. The food shortages are not just a result of bad weather, however. Russia's war in Ukraine, which started last year, is aggravating the crisis. Somalia imported 90% of its wheat from both Russia and Ukraine. The war, of course, has significantly disrupted Somalia's wheat importation. But the war has also distracted the international community from sending foreign aid. Ukraine is taking up more and more non-governmental organizations, or NGOs, attention. Ergo, countries like Somalia are now receiving less aid. Add to that the worldwide inflation crisis spiraling out of control, and for fragile societies like Somalia, you have a recipe for disaster. This has, as the news medium Coda put it, quote, pushed already vulnerable countries such as Somalia to the brink of catastrophe, end quote. Circumstances get even more complicated when you factor in Somalia's war on terror. Al-Shabaab, the aforementioned Islamist terror group which has connections to groups like Iran and Al-Qaeda, has been rampaging in Somalia for about 15 years now, and they still control large swaths of territory in the country. Al-Shabaab is notorious for not cooperating with NGOs and other donors of foreign aid in its territories, and this, of course, directly impedes the international community from helping starving Somalis. For those NGOs that Al-Shabaab does allow to operate within its territory, these groups have to accept taxation, so to speak, of exorbitant sums of money used to fund jihad. Al-Shabaab, of course, doesn't just impact daily life in the areas it directly controls, however. The Somali government is currently on the offensive against Al-Shabaab and has made significant gains in recent days. But between 2016 and 2018, when Al-Shabaab held more power, the terror group drove corn prices alone by about 11% through terror attacks on transportation routes, hurting supply lines. And of course, the war on terror eats up money Somalia could otherwise be spending to feed its people. Children are, of course, among the most vulnerable in times of famine, 
and Somalia's crisis is unfortunately no exception. 1.8 million children are expected to suffer from acute malnourishment in 2023. Earlier this year, Action Against Hunger did a survey in Somalia's Elberde district. Action Against Hunger's verdict? Quote, 29.5% of those surveyed were acutely malnourished, just a half percentage away from one of the famine criteria, end quote. The organization cited an external report that suggested other regions are going through similar conditions. Save the Children, meanwhile, stated on March 1st that roughly half of Somalia's children under five are facing malnutrition. These sobering statistics, unfortunately, are nothing new for much of sub-Saharan Africa. Many in the rest of the world may get desensitized to such stories. No matter how much money we throw at the problem, some may think, nothing changes. People will die, children will starve, bombs will go off. We have to accept the harsh reality and move on with our lives. But there is a deeper lesson in Somalia's famine that warrants closer scrutiny. Moving on too fast from stories like these could cause people to miss the famine's most important lesson. When disasters like famines occur, media often use the cliché line, an event of biblical proportions. Yet few bother looking as to what the Bible actually says about such crises. The Bible actually has a lot to say about famines in particular. A pivotal passage is in Revelation 6. This famous chapter describes the so-called four horsemen of the apocalypse. These symbolize four cataclysms to hit the world before the return of Christ. The first horseman rides a white horse and carries a bow. The second rides a red horse and carries a sword. Now here is a description of the third horse from Revelation 6 verses 5 and 6 in the New International Version. I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Then I heard what sounded like a voice, saying, Two pounds of wheat for a day's wages, and six pounds of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and the wine. The fourth horseman, meanwhile, rides a pale horse, with the word pale translated from the Greek word chloros, which actually means green. It's where we get our word chlorophyll from. Some of this symbolism may be hard to understand. Revelation is one of the biblical books scholars have the hardest time understanding. But this is what trumpet editor-in-chief Mr. Gerald Fleury writes in our booklet, The Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse, quote, The book of Revelation has many symbols with many different interpretations. However, we must remember that the Bible interprets itself. Most Bible scholars fail to realize this fact, and that is why we see so many bizarre interpretations of the book of Revelation, end quote. Revelation 5 verse 5 shows that Christ is the one who reveals the meaning of the four horsemen. But he does so not in Revelation 6, but in other biblical passages, one of the most pertinent being Matthew chapter 24. 
Here is how verses 3 to 7 read of Matthew 24. And as he, Jesus, sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the world? Jesus answered and said unto them, Take heed that no man deceive you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in diverse places. Like Revelation 6, Matthew 24 lists a chain of events starting the countdown to Christ's return. Putting these two prophecies together, and we see that Matthew 24 interprets Revelation 6. The white horse represents religious deception. The red horse represents war. The black horse represents famine. And finally, the green horse represents disease epidemics. Mass starvation events like Somalia's certainly bring to mind the symbolism of the black horse, but putting the scriptures together with current events gives an even deeper meaning. The Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse booklet continues, quote, These brief accounts depict the four horsemen following each other in rapid succession. False religion forced itself on mankind through the terrifying instrument of war. Further down, in the same fashion, the third horseman, depicting famine, follows directly behind war. Though war is a primary factor, it is not the sole cause of famine. End quote. Somalia's problems started with al-Shabaab's jihadist insurgency. These problems with Islamist fundamentalism brought Somalia into the mire of civil war. Supply line disruptions caused by al-Shabaab's war caused food prices to rise in the already impoverished nation. The war in Ukraine, meanwhile, is cutting Somalia off from its main supply of wheat. And this, combined with a record drought, is leading to an epidemic of malnourishment. In other words, Somalia is experiencing a domino effect of religious deception, war, famine, and disease, just as the Bible describes. Somalia's problems are proving Bible prophecy to be accurate. And Bible prophecy is not only about doom and gloom. The same Bible that predicts war and famine also predicts the solution to those problems— to Somalia, and to the whole world. Notice the following prophecy. But in the last days it will come to pass that the mountain of the house of the Eternal will be established in the top of the mountains, and it will be exalted above the hills, and people will flow unto it. And many nations will come and say, Come, and let us go up to the mountain of the Eternal, and to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For the law will go forth of Zion and the word of the Eternal from Jerusalem. And he will judge among many people and rebuke strong nations afar off. And they 
will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up a sword against nation, neither will they learn war anymore, but they will sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and none will make them afraid, for the mouth of the Eternal of hosts has spoken it. You could read that in Micah chapter 4, verses 1 to 4. Somalia suffers from many problems today. But God promises to put an end to these problems, an end to war, to religious deception, to terrorism, to abusive government and non-existent justice. And God promises that every man will have his vine and his fig tree. Every man will have enough to eat. Photographs of emaciated children and cropland turned desert will no longer make the front page news. They will be relics of history. Any aid NGOs and peacekeepers can give to Somalia will be temporary. The country's problems are not going away anytime soon. But even as the Bible prophesies of catastrophes like famine, it also prophesies of the hope beyond. To learn more, please request a free copy of The Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. Also request a copy of Herbert W. Armstrong's free booklet, The Wonderful World Tomorrow, What It Will Be Like, to learn more of how God plans to solve famine and all of man's other problems. You can find both at thetrumpet.com. The voice of the Trumpet News Magazine. You're listening to Trumpet Hour. China has long been deepening its influence in numerous African nations, and the list of nations includes Zimbabwe. The Chinese have long used a combination of anti Western sentiments and boatloads of cash to win friends in the upper rungs of Zimbabwe's government, and they're increasingly using those connections to extract Zimbabwe's resources. In recent months, the Chinese have begun to focus on one certain resource, one that is a vital component in all kinds of high-tech products. We'll learn the details in this report from trumpet writer Rafaro Manyepa. At the heart of the emerging modern-day scramble for Africa is a precious metal that the whole world wants. It's in your phone, your laptop, and your tablet, And if it's not in your car right now, it might be very soon. It's the white gold that's at the center of a human rights crisis that's cloaked in environmentalism. That precious metal is lithium. In 2021, the world produced 540,000 metric tons of lithium, with about one ton costing $7,000. 
In just one year, the cost of lithium rose nearly 10 times, and by 2030, the World Economic Forum projects that the global demand will reach over 3 million metric tons. But unlike the original scramble for Africa, it's not Britain that's out in front. This time, it's China. Lithium batteries are essential in the booming electric vehicles industry, and China has the biggest EV industry in the world by far. It sold a whopping 6.8 million electric vehicles in 2022, over eight times more than the United States. And it is interested in making sure that that disparity never narrows. Two weeks ago, China purchased a Zimbabwean lithium mine for nearly $2 billion, the latest in a series of moves in capturing the lithium market in Zimbabwe. Zimbabwe is believed to have 20% of the world's lithium ore reserves, and it is at the center of the lithium craze. In 2021, Australian-based Prospect Resources was sold for $420 million to China's company Huayu, one of the world's biggest in terms of battery metals. Prospect Resources has also been developing the Arcadia mine in Goromonzi, which is about 40 kilometers from the Zimbabwean capital of Harare. Another Chinese company, Sinomine, bought Bikita Minerals for $180 million in 2021. In June last year, the company announced that it was investing a further $200 million in the first phase of renovations of existing facilities, as well as building a new processing plant with the capacity of up to 2 million metric tons per year. A third Chinese company, one of the world's biggest producers of lithium, bought 51% of Max Mind Company for $76 million in eastern Zimbabwe. China isn't waiting around. It's been able to move in so quickly, though, because of pre-existing ties to African countries built around a combination of anti-Western sentiment and truckloads of cash investments. China has grown from having $121 million in total traded goods with Africa in 1950 to over $250 billion in 2021 dwarfing the United States' $64 billion. But there have been concerns over China's monopoly over African economies. In Zimbabwe, for example, there have been widespread reports of mistreatment and abuse of local workers by their Chinese employers. There's also the fact that, in most of the cases, China isn't using its presence to develop Zimbabwe's lithium processing capabilities, but is merely extracting the precious metal and taking it to China while leaving an, an environmental disaster in Zimbabwe. To make matters worse, in December 2022, Zimbabwe passed the Base Mineral Export Control Act that banned the export of raw lithium, but didn't do so for Chinese companies. And in all of this, where is the West? In particular, where is Europe? According to Zimbabwean economist Victor Boroma, Europe is miles behind China. Here's what he said, quote, We have companies from the European Union, Australia, and Britain doing exploration in the lithium mining industry in Zimbabwe. Hopefully we'll have a more or less balanced diet in terms of investors in the country. We need investors from the EU, he says.
The attainment of independence from European nations was viewed as a watershed moment for many African nations, including Zimbabwe, and it was supposed to mark a period of increased prosperity. But the opposite has taken place in the decades since. Democracy in Africa is either dead or dying. In Zimbabwe, for example, up to $18 billion worth of gold, tobacco, platinum, and other resources have been plundered by corrupt government officials. And lithium is surely next. Nearly 10 million Zimbabweans, 67% of the nation, live in poverty. Over 2 million live in extreme poverty. And violent suppression of protests has been a feature throughout. Zimbabwe has presidential elections coming up in a few months, and already the old tactics of voter intimidation are being deployed. Last week, for example, the student body president of the University of Zimbabwe, a school with over 15,000 students, was arrested for encouraging young Zimbabweans to vote. A similar situation played out in Nigeria's recent elections, which were widely declared as unfair. And these same problems dog the rest of the continent. Former South African President Jacob Zuma is currently on trial on corruption charges. Two Namibian ministers allegedly received bribes from an Icelandic company to gain lucrative fishing rights at the coasts. Several officials in Kenya, Zimbabwe, Somalia, Nigeria, and other African countries are facing coronavirus relief funds corruption charges. With all of these issues, African companies also generally fail to provide basic services to their citizens. Africa is corrupt, led by authoritarian leaders who refuse to give up power and oppress their own people who are beleaguered with poverty while being assayed by an exploitative China. And all of these foul ingredients create a recipe for disaster. Africa is in trouble. And this makes it ripe for the taking in this new scramble for Africa, just as it was in the former one at the end of the 19th century. Autocratic governments are a common feature. Corruption is inherent in these undemocratic countries. But despite all of these issues, major powers are still eager to collaborate with African nations. They continue to display a willingness to do business with corrupt governments. Why? Because they sense the opportunity to gain a foothold in a strategically important resource and mineral-rich continent. They can see the storm clouds of war gathering, and wars cost money. Controlling strategically important sea lanes and ports and acquiring lucrative mining rights could be the difference between victory and defeat. And so as important as China's bold moves are, it's also important to watch Europe. Africa plays a key role in Europe's energy future, particularly in the interest of reducing dependence on Russia. Europe is in a state of metamorphosis. The Ukraine war has certainly precipitated that. Europe needs the mineral riches, oil, gas, and strategic waterways of Africa, particularly around the Horn. And this becomes even more relevant when taking what the Bible has to say into account. Revelation 18 describes a powerful German-led European empire, 
verses 12 through 13 says it is wealthy with the merchandise of gold, silver, precious stones, pearls, fine linen, ivory, brass, iron, marble, oil, livestock, and even slaves. It is only logical that a vast number of these will come from the conflict-ridden, poverty-stricken, yet resource-rich continent of Africa. Here's what late trumpet writer Ron Fraser wrote in 2008, quote, The more unsolvable Africa's problems become, the greater the chance that these powers will seek to enforce peace among its multiple tribes so that they can grab those much-needed resources and place under burden the plentiful supply of African labor to meet their own needs, end quote. The first scramble for Africa came at a time of competition among major powers. This new scramble will be a main contributor to the coming unparalleled global conflict described in Matthew 24 verse 21. The communist powers in the east do have a head start in Africa, but the Bible says to watch for the rapid rise of a German leader who will lead the final resurrection of the Holy Roman Empire. These two powers in Europe and Asia are prophesied to be on the opposite sides of a coming cataclysm. And Africa, with its wealth and resources, might just be at the center of it. This is Trumpet Hour. Russia's war on Ukraine is now well into its second year, and the role of religion remains a key factor in the conflict. 
So because of that, it was a bombshell when investigators recently learned about the political past of the head of the Russian Orthodox Church, as we will hear about now in this report from Andrew Miller. As Russian President Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine continues, Russian Orthodox Patriarch Kirill is defending the military operation. In a meeting with children from Donetsk and Lukansk last year, he emphasized that Donbass is an inseparable part of Russia and called on the youth of Donbass to continue the heroic tradition of defending their homeland. So it's clear that Kirill supports the Russian regime and identifies entirely with Putin's political elite. Yet this should not come as too much of a surprise. Putin has called the breakup of the Soviet Union the greatest geopolitical tragedy of the 20th century, and Kirill was a KGB agent back in Soviet times. Rumors of Kirill's involvement with the KGB have circulated for decades, but Swiss police have finally uncovered documents proving his association with the Soviet National Security Agency. Two Swiss newspapers reported on February 5th that police have verified that Kirill was a member of the KGB in the 1970s, living in Geneva, Switzerland. Citing Swiss federal archives, the police said Kirill's mission was to influence the World Council of Churches to denounce the United States and its allies and to moderate its criticisms of lack of religious freedom in the Soviet Union. This link to Kirill's Soviet past puts his recent comments about Donbass in context. Under Vladimir Lenin, the Soviet Union tried to completely blot out the Russian Orthodox Church. But an important policy shift occurred under Joseph Stalin. In the mind of Stalin, the all-Union Communist Party had cemented its control over Russia to such a point that the Russian Orthodox Church no longer posed an existential threat to the state. So in 1943, he created a new institutional framework for the Russian Orthodox Church to operate under communist control. Stalin wanted to annex much of Eastern Europe after the war, and he knew that he could use the Russian Orthodox Church to bind historically Orthodox regions, such as the Balkans, Belarus, and Ukraine, to his empire. In Western Ukraine, the Soviets forced Greek Catholic churches to merge with the Russian Orthodox Church and deported those who refused to Siberian gulags. Many Russian Orthodox priests joined the KGB during these years and worked to bind Eastern Europe to the Soviet Union. In fact, by the time the Soviet Union collapsed, 20% of its surviving Orthodox churches were in Western Ukraine. This distribution of churches shows that the Soviets primarily viewed the Russian Orthodox Church as a weapon to be used against Eastern European Catholics, while they continued to encourage atheism in Soviet Russia. So when Kirill encourages the youth of Donbass to continue the heroic tradition of defending their homeland, he is continuing Stalin's policy of using the Russian Orthodox Church 
to fight against Catholicism by keeping Ukraine in the Russian fold. The Texas-based think tank Stratfor revealed over a decade ago that Putin was using the evangelization efforts of the Russian Orthodox Church to consolidate Russian control over Ukraine, Belarus, and Georgia. And internal documents from the Russian military show that Stratford was right. Every Russian military officer above the rank of colonel is required to read a 1997 book by the neo-fascist political scientist Alexander Dugan. This book is titled The Foundation of Geopolitics. Dugan glorifies both Russia's czarist past and Stalinist past and espouses a new ideology called national Bolshevism. This ideology fuses Russian nationalism, Bolshevik socialism, and Eastern Orthodox Christianity with just a touch of mysticism. It also argues that the Russian government should annex Bulgaria, Georgia, Romania, Ukraine, and all other nations with an Eastern Orthodox majority. So Putin's invasion of Ukraine is not simply an effort to defend some pro-Russian citizens in Crimea and Donbass. It's an attempt to create an Eastern Orthodox empire stretching across northern Eurasia. Patriarch Kirill supports Putin's foreign policy because it would eventually make him the religious head of this Eastern Orthodox empire. In numerous speeches, Kirill has called the Putin era a miracle from God while condemning Western nations of being in league with the Antichrist. Kirill and Dugan have also likened Putin to the restrainer who holds back the mystery of iniquity prophesied in 2 Thessalonians 2 verses 6 through 7. They see Putin's war in Ukraine as a holy war meant to defend Russian society and Orthodox Christianity from godless Western secularism. Many commentators are drawing parallels between Putin's Russia and the Soviet Union, and some are even drawing parallels between the European Union and Nazi Germany. Yet as disturbing as these parallels are to consider, one may have to look further back in history to see what really transpires. Neither Joseph Stalin nor Adolf Hitler were devout Christians. Stalin was an atheist, while Hitler dabbled in various mystical ideological systems. But Stalin allied himself with the Russian Orthodox Church, like Hitler allied himself with the Roman Catholic Church, because both men knew that their empires had deep cultural and religious roots. Russia has historically been an Eastern Orthodox state, just like Germany has historically been a Roman Catholic state. So these two religions bind together two different world empires. The late Herbert W. Armstrong predicted that the European Union would morph into a seventh and final resurrection of the Holy Roman Empire when a German strongman used the Roman Catholic religion to bind ten European nations together. And now we see Vladimir Putin using a similar strategy. He has partnered with a Russian Orthodox patriarch with the KGP past to convince Central Asian and Eastern European nations to join him in a crusade against the Antichrist. Of course, not all Eastern Orthodox churches are looking to Moscow for leadership. 
Some Orthodox, especially in the Balkans and the Middle East, are trying to cozy up to the Vatican, but most analysts should be able to see that the Bishop of Rome and the Patriarch of Moscow are emerging as the world's two most influential Christian religious leaders. This ecclesiastical development is setting the stage for two influential political leaders, the Holy Roman Emperor and the Prince of Russia. The Holy Roman Empire is not on the stage yet. However, Trump editor-in-chief Gerald Flurry has identified Vladimir Putin as the Prince of Russia, mentioned in numerous end-time Bible prophecies. Uh, if you read Ezekiel 38, verses 1 through 2 in the New King James Version, it reads, Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face against Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, and prophesy against him. And in his book, The Prophesied Prince of Russia, Mr. Gerald Flurry writes, Rosh was the ancient name of Russia, once called Rus. Many encyclopedias and commentaries, such as the James F. Fawcett and Brown commentary, recognize this. So who is this prince of Russia, Moscow, and Tobolsk? The use of all three names shows that this is an individual ruler of all the peoples of Russia, from the west to the east. The reference to the cities of Moscow and Tobolsk help us see how vast Russian territory is in these latter days. This giant swath of land indicates the prince will probably conquer more nations of the former Soviet Union. When you study these scriptures alongside current events revealing modern Moscow's imperialist direction, you see that Russian President Vladimir Putin is the prophesied prince of Rosh. Putin has already conquered Belarus and Central Asia diplomatically, and he's trying to conquer Ukraine militarily. He is partnering with a particular church to help cement his control over these regions. Yet Bible prophecy also indicates that he will come into conflict with another empire and another church. So expect a great clash in the near future.
It's time for today's Last Word. Today is March 15th of 2023. March 15th, the Ides of March. Ides is a term that just means the day that falls roughly in the middle of a month on the old Roman calendar. And that's a phrase that most would be familiar with because of William Shakespeare. In his tragedy called Julius Caesar, he uses that phrase in a famous warning that's issued to Caesar. Beware the Ides of March. So on this Ides of March, I think it's a fitting time to take a quick look at Shakespeare, the bard, and to consider all that he left for us to study and to be edified by. Mr. Gerald Flurry is the editor-in-chief of the Philadelphia Trumpet, and he has written about the dazzling prose and the astounding vision of Shakespeare. And he has even drawn a strong connection between Shakespeare's writings and the vision that helped to build the British Empire. In an article from 2018, Mr. Flurry writes, Through his brilliant prose, William Shakespeare helped prepare the British people to rule over the greatest empire on the planet. There is a giant lesson to take away from Shakespeare's writings. Shakespeare showed how to sustain an empire after building it. Problems will only keep intensifying until we learn this lesson. End quote. From there, Mr. Flurry shows just how much Shakespeare drew from the Bible and how he repackaged several key biblical teachings in his plays in ways that helped to lay the foundation for the British Empire to become so mighty in the years after his death. In Shakespeare's plays, you find themes about God's mercy and the curses that come from rebelling against God, also about the power and necessity of repentance and the unique capacity that people possess for God-like reasoning. Mr. Fleury says that all of this expanded the minds of the British who watched and read Shakespeare and especially British leaders. And he makes the case that this helped the British establish that empire that was overwhelmingly a benefit to the peoples around the world that comprised it. In one section, Mr. Fleury writes, Shakespeare was the greatest non-Bible writer to ever live. So on the sides of March, after hearing a little bit about the benefits there that can come from studying the works of this greatest non-Bible writer, I hope you might consider taking a look at some of those works. And you can also take a look at Mr. Fleury's article that this information comes from. It's called Shakespeare, the Empire Builder. You can find a link to that in the show notes for today's episode of Trumpet Hour on SoundCloud or on thetrumpet.com. Just search for Trumpet Hour in either location and it should come right up. And you'll also see links there to the three articles that the reports in today's episode were based on. I'm Jeremiah Jacques, and that brings us to the end of Trumpet Hour. You can email us any comments you may have about today's episode. The address is letters at thetrumpet.com. Thanks very much to my guests today, Mihailo Zekic, Rafaro Manyapa, and Andrew Miller. Thanks also to Nicholas Irwin and Jesse Hester for taking care of the audio work for this episode. And I'll leave you with this thought from William Shakespeare. Sure, he that made us with such large discourse, looking before and after, gave us not that capacity and godlike reason to fust in us unused. Thank you for joining us on Trumpet Hour. Until next time, keep watching your world.